everybody. Welcome to Sexuality. I am Nix Plenty. So glad that you're listening today. I am really, really excited about our guest today and what we're going to be talking about. We're talking about polyamory, um, but specifically BIPOC representation in polyamory. It's a conversation that needs to be had. And here with me today is Giovanna. Hi, Giovanna. Hello. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, my name is Giovanna Riaga. Um, I lived, I'm from Denver. I lived in Seattle for the last 10 years until I moved to where I am now in Miami, Florida, on Tequesta Seminole land, um, just finishing up my master's in marriage and family therapy. And so I am a therapist and training as well as a liberation partner where I do my own coaching and consulting work. Um, my family is Moche and Afro-Peruvian and Panamanian. And of course, we got a lot of European in there because we know what they did. And um, I am here as a relationship anarchist and um, I'm excited to talk about it. Yay. So relationship anarchy is a, uh, for those who don't know, um, is a um, part of the uh, polyamorous umbrella. And it is using the same principles as um, like political anarchy um, towards intimate relationships. Uh, some important values include autonomy, um, anti-hierarchy uh, practices, lack of state control, um, anti-normativity, and uh, community interdependence. Uh, and it's um, some folks will say that it is similar to um, solo polyamory um, or other forms of dating, but it actually kind of is its own situation. So relationship anarchy, also sometimes abbreviated as RA, um, is kind of part of that polyamorous ethical non-monogamy umbrella. Yeah, definitely. So um for folks who are listening in for the first time, uh, I identify as polyamorous. I've been ethically non-monogamous now for carry the one, um, like nine years, eight or nine years now. Uh, did not start out like, you know, fresh out the gate uh, dating as polyamorous, but something that um, just kind of fell in my lap and really explained a lot of my relationship practices and styles. And it really did take a while for me to meet other uh, people of color that practice uh, practice polyamory. And um, even now, I am in, in several uh, like BIPOC uh, polyamorous groups on Facebook and stuff like that. But there is still definitely um, a wide divide between um, polyamorous groups that are open for all and polyamorous groups that are um, safer spaces for marginalized people. Um, so how did you get into polyamory or relationship anarchy? How did that happen to you? Yeah, it's actually really similar to what you just said. Um, it kind of, I've got into a relationship and it just kind of happened. The timing was right. I had just cheated on a partner, my ex, and um, we had, I had left a somewhat toxic relationship from both sides, myself and my ex. And I met someone who was like free flowing, you know, 
fun dude who was like, yeah, I don't do monogamy, but we can do this. And so we hung out and I was like, you know what? I'm moving to Spain soon. So like, whatever, like, let me just have some fun. And uh, that was goodness, seven years ago, I think, or a little more. And I never, ever have been in a monogamous relationship since. So it really just started out as fun. And um, then it turned into something more committed to, um, well, really an identity, something I realized about myself, like who I was. Yeah, I definitely consider um, being polyamorous a part of my identity, very similar to how I consider my queerness to be a part of my identity, um, my disability as part of my um, identity. It's the way that I choose to love and, and move move in this in this world. Um, so polyamory, I understand it being a part of, of one's identity and, and how that can kind of sneak up on you too. Um, so one of the things that uh, I'm really, really been focused, like hyper-focused on, and I think a lot of us have been really hyper-focused on is... Um, representation and equality and really specifically like equity. And I feel like one of the things I ran into fairly early on in my polyamorous journey, especially in the, uh, the area that I live in, which is Seattle, is that it's um, a lot of folks that are involved in polyamory are really privileged. <laughs> and uh, Seattle is is, uh, is very white, and I don't mean that as a as a negative. It's just it's just kind of the nature of of, of the beast up here. Um, and I mean, I, maybe it has to do with like how cold it is up here too. Like I don't know, but it's uh you know it's very it's very it's very um, the polyamorous community in Seattle is also it's it's a slice of of like the greater makeup. Of, of the area. And I feel like that is probably true for most polyamorous communities um, is that um, white folks make up kind of more of the majority because they make up the majority of, of the population, um, you know, here in the US and in most cities. And then you start getting, you know, it starts getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And so one of the things that has been kind of popping up uh, since I started in polyamory is kind of this um, lack of of understanding when it comes to marginalized identities, moving in what is still considered kind of a niche relationship style in, in this in this country. It's like um, four to five percent of the population of, of uh, in the U.S. is in some form of uh, consensual non-monogamous relationship. That's not a lot. Mm -mm. It's not a lot. Um, what has your experience been as a, as a person of color navigating like polyamory and, and ethical non-monogamy and connecting with people? Yeah, I think it's important to start this conversation off with knowing that I'm a um, non-Black POC, non-Black woman of color. So my experience is going to be um, a little more privileged than a lot of folks who do enter this space. Um, I would say that at the time that I started to be non-monogamous and, and, and join this community, I was still in my own denial about my own anti-Blackness and my own internalized oppression around race. And so 
I didn't understand the harm that was even happening to me immediately when I entered um, polyamory and that community. If anything, it was something that I explored and it was really fun and exciting. And it wasn't until you really got into the, the knit and the grit when you had like multiple partners and all these dynamics start to come forward that I started to see the harm. And um, I think my most the most serious relationship I had next with the metamor, you know, my partner's partner um, was almost a little over two years ago. And, um, you know, he was new. The partner at the time was new to polyamory. And um, the other partner I had was uh, white and, or the, my metamor was white. And um, I really quickly started to notice the dynamics of victimization and, um, how I was made to be the problem often when I was trying to have direct, honest conversations about our boundaries and our hopes for the future. And um, something else that I think is really unique to polyamory is when you've experienced any form of trauma that really comes out when you have multiple partners and um, you have to be very aware of your own boundaries because of those things. And unfortunately, because of the way the system has played out, people of color have more trauma. And um, you enter spaces like polyamory and you're dating people who may have had both their parents, um, may have had, um, you know, support people in their life that modeled polyamory or queerness. Um, they, they may have had resources to healing that someone, uh, someone of color didn't have. So um, it's easy to then make the person who is being activated by this, the relationship dynamics, or um, who is experiencing hurt from the love or the dynamics that are happening, trying to communicate that maybe someone who needs more boundaries to feel safe, the problem. And uh, that's my personal experience. That's what happened to me. And you can ask my friends, I was not myself during that whole relationship. And it was mostly because of my own trauma and hurt around abandonment. And how this particular situation highlighted that for me, um, I had to go to like polyamorous like coaches and therapists to try and figure it out. And I think that part of the situation was just it was just a very unique situation that this person who was new to polyamory met two people that he could see being primary partners with or being in nesting or anchor partnerships with. And, um, you know, that automatically creates an unfair sense of competition where people are competing for their needs to be met. And um, I wanted to talk about that. I wanted to put it all on the table and have a conversation. And instead I was made to be, you know, the person of color causing all the problems and it sucked. It really sucked. Absolutely. I have, um, I, I have had terrible, terrible relationships with, with metamors where um, I have come, I have been made to be the aggressor, um, even if I am correct, or even if it's just a matter of, I'm just saying how I feel. Um, I have always been um, perceived as a, as a threat, even when that's not what's going on there at all. It's just like, if you want to see me threatening, like, let's just keep this going. That's probably going to escalate it. Like, why are you asking for it when that's not even what you're getting? Um, I was in a relationship with someone for two years, uh, and I mean, his wife liked me until she didn't. And it was very distinct and very clear that she did not like me. And I was like, well, I'm not going to force 
a relationship with your with your your with your wife like at all like like I like kitchen table poly uh kitchen table poly is the concept of like all your partners and their partners all kind of being able to like sit around and have dinner together at a table um that's my ideal situation it just was not going to happen with this lady and uh one day I got hit with uh oh Pucks reminds me a lot of myself when I was that age. And like, and no one ever says that as a compliment. That's never a compliment. That's never a compliment. And it was very much so like, well, you know, they just feel like you're a little aggressive. And I'm like, sure. And was this person um, lighter tone than you? Oh, they were very white, like very, uh, very suburban, white, white family. Um, husband and wife have been together since like high school. Uh, she really wanted polyamory. And he was like, cool, I guess we can do that. Let's go for that. Um, and um, he immediately found two partners and uh, began a relationship kind of exploring like his bisexuality. And then he met me and I was the second um femme of centered person he had ever been with. Um, the first person was was his wife. And it was very intimidating, uh, I think, for her to be presented with someone that was a decade younger, um, black, and like at the time I had just gotten into burlesque. So I was like, um just kind of really in your face about it. That's okay. People call. What is happening? No, I think that's my partner's music. Gonna, yeah. yeah, I think the uh, the issue uh, was, you know, I was 10 years, like a decade younger. Um, Black had just started, poly- or just had started doing burlesque. And I was really active in the sex positive community at the time. So I'm doing all of these different things. And you know, I think that she just kind of really got in her feels about feeling like maybe she was like just a air quotes, just a housewife. And I'm like, that's you comparing yourself to me. Like, I'm not, I'm not out here to make anyone feel bad about the stuff I'm doing. If you're interested in doing the things that I'm doing, let me know. I, I got, I got business cards. I got connections. Let's do this. Like, you know, I think it just, it was a lot of, um, you know, a lot of projecting you know, going on at the yeah. time. But I mean, he and I made it work for two years and and then eventually like the breakup came because I was just like, you know, too much of like your your wife's stuff is kind of blunt, you know, is bleeding into the relationship and and I just don't like the energy and like I don't need to be here. And I remember him saying, you know, is that, you know, are you giving me an ultimatum? Like, no, I'm just leaving. I'm just going I don't need you to fix it or try to make it right I just don't I don't want to be here so I'm not gonna be here um I just can't cuddle I can't cuddle you cuddling your wife's feelings over my existence and how that Mm. makes makes her feel threatened yeah you know yeah because it makes me say things like well why doesn't your wife just go find somebody to fuck you know that's not I mean, is that a healthy thing to shout at one of your partners? No, probably not. But like, it could have fixed the problem. I don't know. I mean, but nothing wrong with sharing some love for someone else to get someone to fuck, you know? Word. 
<laughs> too much. Spread the fuck. <laughs> like, I'm just, I'm, it's very exhausting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very, very exhausting. And I've noticed that a lot of the trouble that I've had in most of my polyamorous relationships have been at the hands of, of a really intense white woman. Yes. And I actually, one of my, one of the things that I have seen now become a pattern is the, the, when there's conflict, when maybe a boundary was crossed or, or maybe there needs to be some sort of, you know, resolution amongst metamors or some sort that white identified people, um, especially white identified people who are, you know, assigned female at birth, who've been conditioned with the female lens, um, love to victimize themselves. And I like this one particular victimization is so subtle, but it, it really, I don't have time for it now. If I have a metamor do this now, I'm just like, I'm not doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is uh, X, Y, Z. Javana doesn't like me because conflict happened and Javana set her boundaries. And so that must mean she doesn't like me. And, um, I had a somewhat recent situation happen with this. And I, and I just, I was like, you know, why don't, why don't we rephrase that? You feel guilty because you crossed one of my boundaries. You know, I feel guilty because I crossed the boundary. I am scared that the boundary I crossed might affect my relationship with Giovanna. Like, don't put me at the center of your guilt. I, me liking you has nothing to do with whatever's going on with you. I didn't, I literally did nothing in the situation, you know? And, um, people will do that all the time. And I've experienced that on multiple occasions where when boundary setting time comes, it's not about people taking care of their own feelings. It's now I'm the person who is causing the problem. I'm the person who's not being inviting into the group. I'm, it's like, no, I'm setting boundaries and boundaries are important. They're one of the most important parts of polyamory. So yeah. Boundaries. I mean, there are, I feel like, I feel like boundaries set people off. Like they really do. Um, especially when they aren't, especially when they're used to being able to um, count on the um, emotional labor of someone else. Mm. Um, especially when they're used to just people holding space for them at any time, um, regardless of what that is going to do to that other person's emotional state, um, holding space for them. Um, and it's, it's difficult. I don't hold, um, I do no like emotional, um, I'm not an emotional surrogate for anyone. Just can't do it. Mm-mm. It's especially surrounding any parts of my identity. I don't do free emotional labor, um, period. And I'm most definitely not doing free emotional labor for a metamor because I'm not fucking you. I'm not fucking <laughs> you. I'm not fucking you. Right. Like I'm not in a relation. I'm not in a relationship um, with you. It is my, you know, my partner's responsibility to make sure that your guys's garden, your little, your relationship that that's tended to, it's not my job to tend to that. I'm not like rude. I'm not just going to walk into your shared space and be like, what's up, bitches? I'm here. Like, Get out of my chair. I'm here. <laughs> um, but I'm not going to hold. I'm not going to be your emotional support person for you unpacking your whiteness or mm-hmm. you unpacking your um, cis 
privilege. Um, and the fragility, the yeah, fragility. Like, just not going to do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just not, can't, won't do it. No. no. And, and I think it's, I think the intimidating part, and I think this is where that trauma part comes in, where it's like, because I've experienced pain in this way, I know where I need to protect myself. I know where my lines are. And, and maybe because some, some folks haven't experienced you know, trauma or hurt, they haven't had that opportunity to test their own boundaries and set them. It can be very intimidating, I guess, when you don't know your own boundaries, when someone sets boundaries with you. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's not my problem. (laughs) Yep. Like, go read a book, go look at your boundaries and figure it out, you know, and respect mine. You don't get to challenge mine because you don't know your own. Yeah. I think it really, it just, we have so many, like, just boundaries really mess with people, especially again, people of, of privilege or, or, or haven't really done the work to acknowledge their, their privilege. It's really, really hard. Um, especially when they haven't done the work, like you said, to acknowledge, sit down and see what their boundaries are. Um, not poly related, but related to like, relationships I got involved with a with a troop of performers where the boundaries weren't really clear of like like how like how much personal stuff should we be sharing is this Mm. just professional what is the relationship between um you know kind of the leader of the group and then the rest of us those things weren't really discussed and it created a lot of harm and confusion because there was no no boundaries and, you know, that's, it's, you know, it's not a polyamorous example, but it's definitely an example of how things can go quickly off the rails. I'm not a person that I don't like people just showing up to my house unannounced, period. Mm-mm. Never, never like that. My house is not like, I tell people my door is always open, but that still means you need to text me. <laughs> um, you don't know what I'm doing at home. You have no clue what I'm doing at home. There, and I'm a people person, definitely a people person. I love being around people. I love entertaining, but there are days and really realistically more often than not, that the very idea of like having to hold space for people in my home is not appealing at all. Like, even if I've known this, known this person forever, even I'm just like the actual energy that's going to be required for me to just sit and hold this energy in space. I can't, I just want to be in my bed playing video games and, you know, watching TV right now. Um, I just don't want to hold space for that. Well, and you hold that space, you know, a lot of places outside of your home. So all the time, maybe one, maybe one place is your home where you don't have to do that, you know? Yeah. And I, you know, yeah, go ahead. Oh, it just, it made me, this whole part of this conversation is like bringing up a memory of what happened is, one of my partner, this is the same situation. One of my partners, when the, my actual partner in the situation, when I said my boundaries actually said to me, and I, and then at the time I didn't realize how inappropriate this was, but um, how do I know that those boundaries are actually needed or you're not using to control the situation um, so that, you know, I don't date who you don't want me to date. And In the moment, I was like, well, I guess that's a legitimate fear, you know, especially in polyamory. Like, um, 
like, yeah, that, that is a thing. Veto is a problem and it can cause a lot of problems. Um, and, and how do you know if someone's just, because there's, there's a, such a fine line in polyamory between being insecure and using that insecurity to not do the work you need to do and using that as an excuse to, you know, make your partner do what you want. Yeah. That's real. That happens. Mm -hmm. And then there is a reality where people, you have to know your limits in polyamory. You have to know what you can and can't do. And, you know, like you said, there's the kitchen table level. And then there's people who don't ever know their their metamors. They don't ever know anything about them. So you have to know your boundaries. And I looked in the moment, I was like, okay, it's decent. But then now I look back at it and I'm like, but I've done my work. And I knew in the moment what I needed and you haven't. So that was a way that was that like gaslighting, you know, where it's like, Mm -hmm. instead of taking responsibility for the fact that I don't know my own work or what I need to do, I'm going to flip this to make you the aggressor. Um, And this part, this partner, though, a person of color um, had both parents and we talk about privilege in other ways too. had Mm -hmm. both parents and was, and was male identified. Um, uh, I also felt like, there was a privilege to love, which I, I think that also relates to being a person of color is that love was never handed to me. Love, love was never assumed. Love was earned. Love was something that, you know, I don't just love anyone, even like my family. We don't say, I love you to each other all the time. Like we just know it. We don't talk about it. You know? mm-hmm. We don't, we don't say, you know, and, um, and this, and my, my ex's like family love was so given freely into everyone. And they were a very much more privileged, lighter skinned, like, you know, you, you might even assume this person, well, this person's very light skinned basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, there was a moment where I realized that there was an expectation of me that I had to love the same way they loved Yeah, that I had to immediately trust everything and immediately give my love because it was expected. And in my, my growing up, it was never, you don't expect love from people. You earn love from people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was like a really interesting difference that I think really relates. I, I would think relates to being a person of color. Yeah. Um, I come from a real, um, my family is extremely dysfunctional on both sides, mother and father's side. But it was definitely a family that said the word love and family quite a bit while doing things that didn't match these words. Mm. Um, And so it's love is very confusing. It was very confusing for me as a child and even into adulthood where it's just like, yeah, I mean, you can love someone, but like you could totally just like fucking rip them off. Like, cause that happens a lot in my family. Like you can love someone and still be like, I, I, I dislike you because of one of your identities and who you are. And you're still expected to show up, you know, for Thanksgiving dinner with a smile on your face and not bring up the fact that your family hates the fact that you're queer. You need to stuff that in the, in the name of family. Um, And it really definitely, it definitely fucked me up. It definitely played really heavily into abandonment issues. Um, it definitely affected my mental health and the way that I connect with people. And so I always felt that coming into polyamory as someone who also has borderline personality disorder, that I was really like, I'm really just swinging for the fences of a way to really fuck myself up emotionally, <laughs> like by jumping into polyamory. I'm like, cause like that is a minefield of, a could be a real deep minefield of, of abandonment and 
um, you know, I love this person. This person now loves this person and loves this person. Could, could I lose, lose this person Mm. and the life that we're building together? And again, because polyamory is the polyamorous community out here is very, very white. I, um, most of my partners uh, in polyamory have been, have been white. And it is, it has definitely been a struggle to have like those, these deeper conversations about family and expectation and how to set boundaries. Cause my family has like absolutely zero boundaries and all of these different things and how like I have had to play catch up in the past, you know, 15 years of setting boundaries and, you know, learning how to not fear abandonment and, and recognizing that, you know, people are going to be with you if they want to be with you. And if they don't want to be with you, cool. Like they know where the door is, they can go. Um, It's taken a lot of work, but like, having to sit down and break down how like my, my marginalization and these different mm. intersections of who I am, how these make these things a little bit more difficult, mm. or a little bit more nuanced, a little bit more this, a little bit more that it takes a lot of energy when you're trying to have that conversation with someone that has all these different privileges and breaking that down. And then by the time you're done, you're like, what will we even fucking talking about? Right. I'm just going to yeah. go in my room and shut the door and watch the blackest fucking thing I can find on television because <laughs> I am tired right now. Oh, the exhaustion is so real. And um, wow, you just said a lot. And yeah, yeah <laughs> you said a lot. Um, I think that you you mentioned the um the 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 muscle like the the we have to go through when you've experienced not only like racial trauma but also your own family dynamics which are an extension of racial trauma because we wouldn't have these dynamics within our family if the system wouldn't have messed our families up so badly so you know that that's how it feels in my family at least mm-hmm. um and um what really came forward to me which was probably one of the most heartbreaking things with the way this last relationship ended was um, the fear that my partner is always going to leave me for someone who's lighter skinned. And in my, for me, particularly it's white women. I know that like for someone who's black, like they've got a whole skew of lighter skin folks who Latinx, Asian folks, you know, white folks who, who have that privilege. And um, when it, it happened, my greatest fear happened in that relationship where someone who I loved deeply and I thought I was going to have a future with in the end chose to be with a white person. Um, and I voiced that fear over and over again in the relationship. And um, I don't know if that was fair of me. I don't know, but I feel like, and for me, I want to be in a relationship where I can be authentic and um, honest about my fears And, um, I would hope that my partner would honor them or at least be upfront about honoring them if their ability to honor them or not. Um, and, uh, this partner was just like, no, I would never, I would never leave you. I would never for, for this person. And then that's what happened. And, um, I think that 
I think they're definitely a much better couple, like paired. They have a lot more um, compatibility now, like retrospectively, you know, coming out of it. But I think the harm that happened because of the racial dynamics to me, um, it didn't just hurt me from that one relationship or the intensity of that relationship or the love. It's like, it reminded me of every moment in my life that a man said, no, it's because you're not white. Like, and that has happened to me a many, a many time when someone has been like, I'm sorry, like I don't date, I only date white girls, or I've actually been told, I've been told that I'm not as pretty because I'm not white. Oh yeah. No, I definitely have been told that, um, I have definitely been made to feel, um, like a consolation prize. Um, I've been made to feel like a consolation prize been made to feel like, um, a line item on a bucket list for sure. Mm. Um, I think the, one of the trouble spots of, of, of polyamory that I've seen, um, with my involvement in the polyamorous community, as well as like the, the king community is, um, indigenous black and people of color, um, you know, face a lot of things that are pretty demoralizing, especially when we talk about like racial microaggressions and fetish fetishization. Um, I think is the, the kind of the worst of one of the worst of it, right? It's because it's it's the insidious one. It's the one where the hyper focus is on the fact that um, you're black or you're Asian or Latina or is really intense. Um, I know that especially in the community, there is a the fetishization of Asian women is so intense so intense that i actually used to feel really bad when i was uh volunteering at parties for the center for sex positive culture here in seattle and asian women would walk in i'll just be like oh boy you're gonna have a night where people are going to say things to your face that are extremely offensive and they're just not even going to clock that that they're saying something to you that is so deeply offensive so deeply offensive um and then like in the poly world like especially like being i feel like a bull in a china shop you know Mm. a lot of times when i walk into a uh you know a poly space um you know there's usually maybe two or three other black folks you know (laughs) and i'm just like oh this is great like there are all these porcelain people here and here i come like oh you know, loud and vibrant and excited and wanting to create community, um, wanting to connect with people and feeling, um, not knowing how I'm going to be received. Am I going to be alienated? Am I going to be dealing with this microaggressions or am I going to be turned into a walking, talking fetish? Mm-hmm. And I know that that is more probable for black men in polyamorous than, um, especially in swinger spaces, black men are, uh, are walking, talking fetishes in the, in, in the, in the swinger community. Um, you have things like, um, so like the bull fetishes and the hot wife fetish where it's like, I want, I want to watch my wife be fucked by a black man. And it specifically mm. needs to be a black man and the whole narrative surrounding that um there's whole communities of white women that have um spade tattoos on their body like 
card, the playing cards, they have a spade um, tattooed on them. It means that they are, that they only want to bang black men. That is wow. what that tattoo is. And that's, that's not a, that's not a tattoo about equality. <laughs> Like, you know, that's not an equality tattoo. That's not an equity tattoo. That's a racist fucking tattoo. Um, I mean, it's just, just, it's icky to think about when you think about the way, you know, when, when there were slaves, when there were enslaved people here and, and where the roots of that, the roots of that, like, if you, if you really think about it, we know where the roots of that came from. And that's, it's icky. It's really icky. And when we think about these different situations, I think about who has the power. Mm. And even in relationships that are not rooted in BDSM or kink, mm-hmm. power dynamics are always, always a thing in relationships. Who has the power? And when we're looking at the, um, like the hot wife fantasies, the, you know, the bull fantasies, the cuckolding fantasies, nine times out of 10, it's the white husband that has the power mm-hmm. in that dynamic. And if not the white husband, the white wife. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They have the power in that dynamic. And I know that like there's some swinger communities out here where, you know, you know, we have, you know, the black men are super excited about these, these swinger events and things like that. Cause they're just like, it's just, there's just like, there's so much opportunity for me to bang. It's so great. And I'm just like, I mean, as long as you feel like you have the power mm-hmm. in that, I mean, great. I'm like, but you really should look at that about, do you have the power in this dynamic? And are you being used as a tool? And if you're cool with being used as a tool, recognize that you're not the dominant force in that mm-hmm. shenanigans, that you are definitely um, at minimum, you are a tool. And at the worst of it, you are being used as a submissive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm sure there's people who are into that. And so as long as the conversation is had and as long as, the, you know, consent is made, then that's great. But like you said, sometimes I can say even just in my friend communities that I chose when I was in Seattle, I was fe- feeling now that I'm literally mostly surrounded by um, people of color here, like I don't have that many white friends in Miami and like, man, it's beautiful in color over here. <laughs> my, my current partner is a Dominican man. And um, you know, he's just starting his, his, his journey on in polyamory and it's exciting. And um, we get to talk about race in a really special way. And I, and I haven't had that experience um, with partners before and it's been really nice and I just recently met some, just like some people of color who are polyamorous. And we just, we just had these moments and I'm, I'm really starting to find a nice community here. That's, it's pretty big. Swinging's pretty big down here too. And um, it's just such a different dynamic. Like it's, inex- it's inexplicable. It's inexplicable. Um, and it makes me, it reminds me of Quink too. Brick House yeah. event. I was at the first one working the door. And I remember this, this white guy coming up to the door and getting all sassy because he wasn't allowed because he was with an Asian woman. Mm-hmm. And well, she's, she's Asian. She's a person of color. Like I'm with her. And um, 
It was like, absolutely not, sir. You're not allowed in this space. And he was so entitled, so angry. And, and I have to say, I garnished a lot of pleasure (laughs) from not allowing that man in that space. I I have to say, because it is something special when you get these moments, when you get to experience polyamory or, um, kink culture with just people of color. It it changes the dynamic so much. It is a safer space. It's a mm-hmm. safer space. I think that by I've been asked numerous times, why do they need to be all all black poly spaces? Why do they need to be all just BIPOC poly spaces? Why do they need to be all black kink spaces? All black, you know, um, are all you know BIPOC uh, kink spaces? And I'm like, this is how. If you don't have these spaces, you don't keep people of color in general spaces. We have to have this home base to build from or come to so that we can go back out in the world. Mm-hmm. And having those spaces to fall into so you can come back and be like, hey, I had an experience out here in the wild. Just gut checking. Was this good? Was this mm-hmm. bad? Because it doesn't feel right. And being able to have that conversation open and honestly with you know, people that have similar experiences as you is like, that's the way of the world. People actively seek out people that have similar interests to them. We've always done that. Mm -hmm. We've always done that, but it doesn't, it doesn't mean that we don't want to be involved in other spaces. I feel like it makes me, um, it makes it so that I can armor up Mm -hmm. the spaces a little bit better. It also means, hey, I met some people in this cool BIPOC space. Let's go to this other event. There may not be a whole lot of us, but if we all go together, we have each other and we can navigate this space together. And it's that's really hard to communicate sometimes with folks that just don't understand why marginalized people need to have these private spaces. And what I've always heard is, well, are you guys talking about us in those spaces? I'm like, we don't want to. <laughs> We really don't want to. That's definitely like to not, not the point. <laughs> like, I, we would really rather not talk about you in those spaces. We'd rather be talking about our own experiences and things like that. So make it easier on us by not making us talk about you. Stop doing mm-hmm. less to make us talk about you. Um, and for folks that are listening right now who are like, hey, you're maybe feeling a certain way about the way the conversation is going or feeling like, oh, they are really um, shitting on white people right now. No, we're not dunking on you. That's not what's going on here. This is just you are getting the privilege and the luxury of listening to a real conversation between um, two queer, you know, people of color who were socialized as, uh, as female for most of their lives. Mm-hmm. having a conversation about something that is a part of our identity and that is being ethically non-monogamous. Mm-hmm. So I would say instead of, you know, I'm not going to tell you how to feel if you're feeling a certain way listening to this, but I'd ask you to kind of sit with that. Um, some things that I would definitely recommend is, you know, set aside your defensiveness, especially when we talk about race and white privilege. Um you gotta, you gotta check that ego. You really do. The def- the defensiveness that you feel um, may include the desire to uh, offer a rebuttal or play devil's advocate. Um, let me just tell you, the devil has enough help. <laughs> he does not need your assistance. 
there. Let it go. Um, listen, like really genuinely listen. Take a moment, listen, think about what we're saying. Think about what other people of color in your circle are saying, especially when it comes to this conversation. I mean, you may be tempted to interrupt your friends who are talking about their experiences. No, just sit, just sit for a second. I definitely would recommend um, educating yourself. There are tons of books out there, websites. I mean, you're listening to this podcast right now, YouTube, a really amazing book out there right now is called Loves Not Colorblind, Race and Representation in Polyamorous and Other Alternative Communities. It's by uh, Kevin A. Patterson. Totally recommend checking that out. Uh, there is another book called Polysecure Attachment Trauma and Consensual Non-Monogamy by Jessica Fern. Definitely check that out. Please, please, please. Those are two really great book resources. I mean, definitely check them out. Um, and then you really do have to kind of acknowledge white privilege. Like you really do. Educating yourself on what white privilege is will help you recognize it as well when you see it in others. This is not to say that your life isn't hard or that you didn't have, you aren't struggling or haven't struggled. It's just to say that you had a little bit extra help out the gate. And yeah. Yeah. And you really need to lean into, um, you got to tolerate the discomfort. Talking about race, especially in the U.S., is really, really, really uncomfortable. It's going to be profoundly uncomfortable for you. And that's okay. It's okay. It's okay to feel uncomfortable. It's okay to sit in that discomfort. I can almost guarantee you that the discomfort that you are feeling is does not even measure to the discomfort that people of color are experiencing at the hands of racism. It just isn't. Yeah, and I think what you just said is so important and powerful. And it when you said, you know, in ethical non-monogamy, I mean, we need to really remember what ethical means. And as a, as a therapist in training, I really sit with that. I was actually just talking to my partner about this, that the word ethic, the foundation of ethic in mental health in any medical profession is to do no harm. That is what ethical means. So if we're going to do ethical non-monogamy, that means that we have to do no harm. And how can you do no harm if you don't understand the experiences of people that are different than you? If you don't take the time to understand the ways that particular harms have happened in particular communities, and what can you do, especially if your community has contributed to that harm, to lessen it? And um, I think it's an important part of, of ethical non-monogamy and, and polyamory that sometimes we don't think about applying our ethics models and thoughts to the to relationships, but you really do have to, especially if you're polyamorous, sit back and think like, how much harm am I doing by making this decision? How much harm could happen? And is, is it worth it? Is it worth harming someone that I care about and I love about and I want to develop relationship and trust with? More likely than not, the answer is no. So as someone who identifies um, 
kind of more in the realm of like paganism and and uh, identify as kind of you know on that on that witchy tip. The thing that really drew me to to that was like there's one rule, and that's like do no harm. And there was just something about that that really resonated and opened me up. Like that is something that I can get behind for sure, right? Is do no harm. And, you know, that is, that is the principle of, of, of ethics, right? And so having these conversations and being open and honest and allowing yourself to be in a position to receive information that you may not want to receive while in a relationship is it's important and this is if you're monogamous or or not a lot of communication things that are going like folks who are involved in um you know an ethical non-monogamy are having a lot of conversations and a lot of those conversations would definitely benefit a lot of monogamous folks too Mm -hmm. for sure i um used to say I over communicate and underthink because I don't know what you're thinking. Mm-hmm. I don't. I mean, I can, I can make some guesses, but I'm not a mind reader, and it's, and I'm definitely um, not in a place to be a mind reader in a relationship. I don't know. I want to hear what you're thinking. I want to know where you're coming from, and I'm not going to guess. What you're mm-hmm. thinking is none of my business until you decide that that is what you want to share with me. Mm. Yeah. And <laughs> don't we do that? That obsesses. I'm, I'm so, I'm so, I'm a Virgo. I'm so obsessive. Sometimes mm-hmm. I want to just analyze it to there's no analyzing left. Like I know people and the decisions that they're going to make, even though that's impossible and drive myself while doing that. Um, so yeah, that's an important point. And, you know, and speaking of equity and, and this concept, I, I think it's important also for us to name that um, non-monogamy was an indigenous practice long before the colonizers came. And if we're going to sit here and talk about people of color and and representation, you know, we also have to um, call into the fact that part of the problem is colonization and that decolonization land back is really important in this process. And honestly, i I do believe that you don't have to be um, not monogamous to decolonize, but I do think that the process of decolonizing love and the way we love each other does bring you closer to some form of ethical non-monogamy or at least ethical monogamy. You know, I've heard that term thrown out. Um, And a really good person to doing research in Canada around this topic, she calls it, um, uh, what'd she call it? Settlers. settlers relationships or some something of the such and it's kim Talbert. um she's this amazing research she has some podcasts out there about um indigenous relationships and um how the colonization really intentionally forced monogamy on us um in order to make sure that there was a working class and that's something we all have to look at too you know it's like it's like Colonization and capitalism have really just um, done a doozy on people and their access to like living their most authentic and apologetic lives, as well as robbing us of our culture, 
mm. and our ability to connect with one another. Um, there is a long history of consensual non-monogamy that predates predates today's version of, of monogamy. Um, and it's presented in, in so many different types of cultures, like you were saying. Um, having a heterosexual relationship with one person leading to marriage wasn't really the norm until about a thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. And there's been just a long, rich history of what is known as like walking marriages, mm. uh, open arrangements and polyamory in indigenous communities. And it's been documented like all over the world. Um, one of the things that um, I've, I have always thought was really interesting is like uh, in um, Irish culture, right? Um, when they do hand fastings, it's for a year and a day. And so mm. then you get to decide if you're going to re-up <laughs> after a year and a day. Like, we did this for a year and a day. Are we want to re-up? And I'm like, you know, I could get down with that. <laughs> I love it. Re-up, re-up yeah. this commitment. It's, I, think it's, I think it's really, really important that we look at, um, that we, we've talked about a lot of things today. We've talked about boundaries. Um, and that's super important. So I think it's definitely something to think about. Think about how our privilege, our privileges and our biases really affect all of our relationships, not just our romantic relationships, but even our friendships. And that there is value in platonic relationships for sure. That um, I have some platonic relationships that use as much emotional energy as my romantic ones. Mm-hmm. It just is what it is. And that I wouldn't trade those platonic relationships for anything in the world. They have so much value to me. And I think that when you were talking about how, like, even when we start looking at like ethical monogamy, that's part of part of that ethical monogamy conversation is going to be about the platonic relationship we have and the emotional support that is happening in those relationships. That is a level of intimacy that society has told us that we're not really supposed to have with our friends, especially if they're the opposite sex. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As someone um, who's non-binary, I'm just like, why <laughs> to me? Yeah, I actually, you know, I work with a lot of youth and young folks and parents and helping families like develop boundaries and such with each other. And, and one of the funniest ones is when a young person who is, you know, female identified or, you know, born into the female identity uh, has male friends. And it's like, I have to keep my daughter safe or, and it's very common, you know, well, what are they doing with this, this boy? And it's like, I don't know, maybe they're just friends. You know, maybe they could actually just be friends. And what are we communicating, communicating to our children by saying, it, because it's a man, it has to be romantic. Like, what are we communicating about relationships between the genders um, or wh- why gender matters in that sense in the first place at all, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think that that's, it's definitely a deep dive that I would love to go into about parenting and, and, and sexuality and, and all of that. I know that usually the decisions that are made, people are making with the information that they have mm. in front of them. And nine times out of ten, that information is really incomplete. <laughs> and a lot of the a lot of that energy that folks put into like, oh, I don't want my daughter to have 
male friends because if you have male friends then you know they put this energy out there that creates the the thing that they didn't want to happen anyway because now you have these these you know these kids questioning whether or not if their friendship is real and whether or not their friendship needs to be sexual because well clearly we're not doing it right because our parents are insisting that that's the only way that this is actually a thing so we end up creating our own monsters most of the time um yeah you know it also makes me think and it it really relates to polyamory in the sense that we also communicate that your partners aren't your friends when we make those assumptions and i my partners are my friends almost every person i've been in a romantic relationship with it is currently my friend even if like we no longer have a romantic relationship and that's actually one of my favorite parts of relationship anarchy is them the identification of your needs and your boundaries and your wants and how that applies to every relationship, not just your romantic. There are no exceptions. You don't have rules for your parents and then you have rules for your partner and then you have rules for your friends. No, you have expectations for all of your relationships. And um, it's one of my favorite parts of relationship anarchy. And I think that um, we just communicate these things to each other in such subtle ways, even to our children in something as simple as saying, you have to have a male friend. He's going to be a romantic partner. Yeah. It's very fascinating. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's highly unfortunate that uh, we, we end up again, creating, creating our own monsters, mm. creating our own monsters. I would say one of the things that has definitely popped up um, navigating navigating um being a person of color in 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 polyam spaces is the um income mm. uh mm. separation i have mm. a i have a partner that i've been with almost three years who um he lives with his primary partner and her husband and they all have a they have like two dogs together and they all rode, ride motorcycles together and like they work on cars they travel a lot um like they and they've all been together now like for seven years so it's like this really beautiful poly polycule situation they have going on and um they had a home in a, a historically black neighborhood in seattle and one of the things that they did knowing that they were kind of you know the white folks in the neighborhood as they befriended their next door neighbor, an older black man, and basically did his lawn care for him and took oh, care wow. of him. And like when folks would come around trying to like con him into like selling his house and stuff like that, they'd read all the paperwork with him, all of that. Mm. And they were just like, if we were going to be in this neighborhood, we need to take care of the people who have always been in this neighborhood. Mm. And something that I really have respected about them. They just recently sold their house. And it was one of those times where I realized like how big classism is a thing and how I internalized that. Mm. Um, They were, my partner made a statement about how like they purchased this house in Lovid. They're about to sell the house in Seattle and how they're, you know, well, we can stay in this hotel for a little while and then we'll come back to the house and we'll do this. He goes, just right now, you know, I own, I own like four, four, four houses right now. 
he owns two duplexes as well. And I just remember just being like, you and I have wildly different problems, like completely different problems. We had a conversation not too long ago and he's just like, you know, I'm, I'm thinking that in the next few years, I'm going to want to retire and I'm going to spend half of my time like in Japan and the other half of my time in the States. And I just remember being like, I don't know what that means for us, but okay. You know, like, I don't know. What a life. There, yeah, you know, and life. I'm like, huh, right. And it's just, it's a very, it's a very fascinating conversation. When I have, when I, when it's time for me to go on a trip, I need to plan that shit like nine months to a year in advance. Money, money is, uh, is always a thing. And like saving the money, I'm an, I'm an artist and, you know, and an educator, and this is what's going on. And so like, when he's just like, Oh, we're gonna go. We're gonna go to Mexico, you know, in like two months, I'm just like, must be nice to be able to make that choice in less than 90 days. Mm-hmm. That. And so there's this definite, um, and I've noticed this a lot, like, you know, where like, I have poly friends who are like, Oh, all of us went down to like Costa Rica and we got pictures and it's so great. And like, yeah, well, all my poly friend, you know, family came over and I ordered pizza mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and that set me back, you know? So it's, it's definitely, it's always, it's always a conversation. I appreciate that he's open to having the conversation when I'm just like, Hey, I'm having a feeling about what is going on here and I need to sit with that. Do you mind listening to me talk about it? And then we can kind of go from there. Um, when we first started dating, he just, it was just like, it, it is what it is. Like I have, you know, I bought a new car because like I need to buy a new car. And so I bought the car and I'm like, like, but just like that, you just bought the car. <laughs> like, your mom didn't need a cosign for you. Like, right? I, I can't relate. I can't relate. I can't relate to that. Like, it's so unrelatable. And, and folks look at him and they look at me and they're just like, what is it that you two even have in common? And for the first two years of this relationship, I was like, I don't fucking know why he's still here. Mm. And finally, I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to ask him, why are you still here? And he goes, I'm here because you are such a strong person. You're just a strong person. You're a person that like, I love feeling your energy when I'm around you and what you're doing. Mm. And I'm like, that's great. Cause I'm broke. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and ain't that something capitalism, capitalism has made us process our value in a relationship based on how much we can materially provide for it. And I think that I talk about this, you know, with any partner that I'm equitable, I'm not about, um, if I make more money than you, which I likely won't right now, um, then I'll pay more. You know, if I want to go to a fancy restaurant and I make more money, it's my job then to pay for that meal. Um, and I mean, just hearing you talk about that, especially in regards to polyamory and ethical non-monogamy, I just like so many things came up, like, um, you know, taking people to dates. Like, you know, if you don't have the finances to take multiple partners to dates, how does that work? Or, or what about like, if you have a home with your family and, um, you want to, you want to spend the night with someone, you don't have multiple homes and you can't afford a hotel. How do you get to spend a night with someone? You know, like there's so many parts that 
financial privilege, which is so often tied to racial privilege, um, comes into play in having a successful and fulfilling polyamorous relationship. And I think that that's one of those ways where allyship becomes huge. If you have the resources to support your partners, you know, who are less privileged in that financial way, um, then you, then I, I mean, that's a gift and it really can contribute to the relationship and to give it without expectations to just give it, to give it. I mean, I've had that happen to me and it's very healing. It's very healing. I've even had, um, I was, a. I was the third in a marriage, but just with the husband, um, but the wife was, and to this day, uh, she still sends, she'll send me money sometimes because she knows I'm going through grad school or when they moved, um, she had all these clothes and, you know, she, she was selling them and she just, she's let me pick whatever I wanted though, because she wanted to make sure I got some cool stuff. And when I got sponsored to go to the women's March, um, she sewed me, not that I love the pussy hats or like I wear it anymore, mm-hmm. but she sewed it. She, she knitted it for me. It was just this very special relationship that she knew she had privilege as a white woman. And, um, that, that couple was amazing. I would have loved to keep dating her husband, but they moved to Australia and then they eventually closed their marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, but she just knew, she knew about the privilege. She knew that her and her husband had more finances than I did. And she did what she could to support me, even that, though we weren't dating, you know? Yeah. Um, so fun fact about that. So this, the partner I was just talking about last night, I had a two hour, um, video call with his primary partner because mm. she's helping me plan a, a fundraising event for um, one of my one of my shows and you know he's hanging out in the background and he you know says hi and he quickly makes himself scarce because he's you know because we have this understanding I'm calling to talk to her we're talking about business mm-hmm. I don't have time to flirt with you in the corner like chill out it's a cute self out the camera yeah it was, it was adorable and we just talked and stuff like that and she goes oh you're going to be seeing him this weekend right and like yeah she's like are you coming here or are you guys going to be at your house I'm like we're going to be at my house she goes okay yeah okay she's like well because i was going to continue the conversation about the fundraising when you got here for a little bit but that's fine I'm like that's great you know and so we have her and i have this amazing relationship and she is all about you know processing her privilege one day she sent me a laundry list of grants and sponsorship opportunities for BIPOC artist organizations. And I was just like, this is the sexiest gift I've ever received. Mm. Period. Thank you. Um, she always seems to know when to message out of the blue. Like she mm. just has this preternatural sense. Hey, are you doing okay? I'm like, actually, I'm really stressed out. Talk to me about your dogs because I miss your dogs. They have mm. two corgis. They're gorgeous. They're gorgeous dogs. Um, but like she definitely shows up when we had, you know, when we had all of the protesting up here in Seattle last summer. She messaged me and she goes, have you been up, you know, to uh, Capitol Hill yet? And I'm like, I haven't. And she goes, do you need us to go with you? Mm. And I'm like, yes, yes, I do. And she goes, we'll meet, we'll meet y'all there. And so it was my, my metamor, my partner, and then, and then one of my partners that I live with. And then I messaged uh, my two other partners and said, we're going up to the hill. 
and they showed up. So my submissive who I've been with for almost four years showed up. And then um, my non-binary partner, my joy friend showed up and like, and they brought their, their partner. So I had my two metamors there, my four partners. And I, I just remember listening to someone give a, give this impassioned speech and I'm just crying. So I'm like, I feel so supported. Mm. I feel supported and seen and they get it. And I remember one of my partners saying, you know, if shit pops off, make sure pucks gets to the car first. Mm. Mm. I got chills, right? I got chills because I love how we went from the beginning of this conversation. We were kind of talking about the harm um, we've experienced from polyamory, from other, from metamorphers or from, from partners um, in regards to race. And now we're, we're like almost ending this conversation on the joy we've received um, from equitable uh, metamors or partners and how beautiful this really can be if we respect each other's boundaries and respect each other's histories and harms and traumas and hurts and just take care of each other and how beautiful it really can be because that was a beautiful story. Right. We got to hold space for that. Mm-hmm. I recognize that for some people of color and some black folks, especially the fact that, you know, all of my partners currently are white is a huge problem. Um, as a dominant queer non-binary person, I recognize that my options sometimes are a little bit limited. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm out here constantly connecting with people and talking to people. It's not a matter of um, self-hatred or anti-blackness or anything like that. It's just like, I'm looking to connect all the time and I'm just not everyone's cup of tea and that's okay but let me tell you as if you're someone that's listening right now and you're just like I don't know what to do I think the most amazing thing for me that was really healing is recognizing that the most important black love that I needed was love for myself Mm. that that was literally the most radical thing I could do is be like yeah, I fucked around and found self-love. I need to put that on a t-shirt. Yeah, um, you do. <laughs> fucked around and found self-love. It's 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 powerful. And I think the 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 big takeaway about polyamory is, is that the heart is capable of loving mm. and loving and loving. It is a re- it's a renewable resource. It is the energizer bunny of of all the things. Um, time is the most valuable resource that we have and it is not renewable. Mm-hmm. And so choosing who you want to spend time with, who you want to give yourself to is it's literally a gift when someone chooses to spend time with you and give you their time. You're giving you a gift because Every minute that we have is extremely precious and it is gone and it is not coming back after it has been put out there into the universe. So, I mean, love as much as you're, as you feel that you're capable of. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say if you're monogamous, you need to go out there and be like doing all the things that you're going to be doing. Love as much as you feel you are capable of. The heart can love so much yeah and it's one step at a time right right now you think you can love one or two people 
over time, your heart, because of the love of those two people or those one people, your heart will expand. And that's the beautiful part about it. It's another thing I love about polyamory. Um, and of course, in the process, be curious. I think that as someone who works with couples, the most beautiful couples I've experienced and one of my favorite parts about my current relationship is the curiosity versus the knowing approaching relationship with curiosity versus knowing. And, um, and of course, just paying attention to the harm you do and being accountable and doing your best not to cause harm. Absolutely. Giovanna, where can people find you? How can they support you? How can we, how can we love on you? Tell us all the things. <laughs> so um, you can check out JovannaArriaga.com or JovannaArriaga.com. A little easier to remember from without the role. Um, you can also check out a new project I just launched with a bunch of amazing therapists down here in Miami called the Generational Healing Space. Um, it's GenerationalHealingSpace.com. We also Generational Healing Space at um, on Instagram and on Instagram I'm at alongside Giovanna. I do client work. Have my own. Um, you know, things that I lead, I, I have my own accountability program called how to fuck up with grace. I'll be releasing a new one in July. Um, and if you follow me on Instagram or check me out on Facebook or get on my website, you should be able to check all that out. Yay. I love it. I'm here for it. I want to take, uh, take this moment to thank you for coming. And this conversation was rich. This is a rich, juicy, ripe conversation. And it's one that can continue. Um, probably could talk another two hours about it, maybe <laughs> more, you know. Um, but also want to give a special thank you to all of our listeners. Um, it's a tough topic when we start getting into race. So thank you for sticking it out. Um, and like I said, if you're feeling any discomfort or really kind of like in your feels about it, sit with it, pull at it, stretch at it you know, do some research, grab some books. We'll make sure to have the resource list attached um, to uh, to the intro to this as well as um, on our Patreon and our Instagram. So you can get, get those resources. Want to give a special shout out to our super patron, Anna Armstrong. You are the best. We appreciate you so much. And to all of our patrons on Patreon, thank you for supporting um, the the journey of querying up sexual education. I have been your host, Mix Pucks of Plenty, and this has been Sexuality. And make sure you check us out on May 22nd. The Hedonist Realist and Sexuality present the second Polyam Day Camp, sponsored by Feminista Jones and Pockle. It is all virtual. We'll make sure to drop the link um, so you can check that out is a day-long polyamorous conference and we have 12 plus presenters, all kinds of topics, including effectiveness in communication, uh, conversations about BDSM and polyamory, mental health and being ethical non-monogamous and so much more. So the second polyam day camp, May 22nd, 2021. Take care of yourself. Make sure to stay hydrated, eat something if you haven't in a while, and remember it's okay to not be okay because what's going on right now is definitely not okay. Have a good day. Bye.